There is no more important time than now, and there is no better place than the Shalom Harman Institute to imagine the Israel of tomorrow. Join us in Jerusalem for one powerful week of learning at our summer community leadership program. From June 26 to July 3rd, explore the spiritual and moral questions of this moment with top Hartman scholars, experience Israel's resilience during this time of great challenge, and dream together with lay leaders, philanthropists, and dedicated learners from around the world of the future we hope to build. It reminds us that we're part of something bigger than just ourselves and our community. We're part of a people and we're part of a world of great ideas, and nothing sustains that as much as being here every summer. Reserve your spot today at shalomhartman.org forward slash community leadership. And together, we will imagine the Israel of tomorrow. Hi, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. My name is Jordana Amsel. I serve as Director of Development for Israel Programs at the Shalom Hartman Institute, and I'm currently speaking to you from Israel. We just concluded our Community Leadership Program, which is an annual week of learning at our Jerusalem campus, where 175 lay leaders, learners, and philanthropic professionals gather from around the world to explore our core commitments of modern Judaism and Zionism, and to reflect on Jewish meaning, belonging, and obligation with fresh eyes. The following is a conversation recorded last week at the program in front of a live audience. Alana Steinhain spoke with Orly Arizlachowski and Rick Jacobs about Jewish liberal activism in Israel and North America. In it, they discussed how liberal values translate into political action. Alana is Rosh Feet Midrash at the Shalom Harman Institute and co-host of the For Heaven's Sake podcast. Orly is director of the Israel Religious Action Center, and Rick is president of the Union for Reform Judaism. Take a listen. Okay, welcome everyone to the last night of our community leadership program. We have been speaking for those who are watching us online and those who are here, we have been speaking the whole week about Judaism and being the choosing people. And we've spoken both about religion and politics, but I've noticed that the religion conversations tended to be a bit more on the personal side and the political conversations tended to be about politics sans the religious conversation. And what we're gonna try to do tonight is we're gonna try to have a conversation about how religious values get translated into public policy. So in some ways, politics as public religion, if you would. And I'm very pleased to be joined here by two people who represent the reform movement throughout the world, who are really translating their understandings of Jewish values and their movement's understanding of Jewish values into political action. I wanna introduce them, though I'm sure most of the people watching know who they are. Immediately to my left, we have Orly Erez Likovsky, who graduated from the Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University. She also clerked at the Israeli Supreme Court, studied for a master's degree in law at Columbia University, focusing on human rights. Orly's a member of both the Israeli and the New York Bar. She's been working at the Israel Religious Action Center of the Reform Movement. She's been working there since 2004, was the director of the legal department of IRAC between 2014 and 2021. In this capacity, she led the legal struggle against discrimination on the basis of religious affiliation, gender segregation in the public sphere, and racial incitement. 
Orly has led significant legal achievements, such as abolishing gender segregation on public transportation, breaking the orthodox monopoly regarding the payment of salaries of state-employed rabbis, and disqualifying racist candidates from running for the Knesset. Since November 2021, Orly has been the director of IRAC. And since January 2023, she has been the executive director of IRAC. She is a member of a reform congregation in Mivaseret Zion, Israel, where she lives with her family. Thank you so much for joining us here this evening. Pleasure being here. To her left is Rabbi Rick Jacobs, the president of the Union for Reform Judaism, URJ. The URJ leads the largest and most diverse Jewish movement in North America, reaching more than 1.5 million people through 850 congregations, 15 overnight camps, and the Reform Teen Youth Movement, NIFTI, as well as the Religious Action Center, the RAC, in Washington, D.C. He's a longtime devoted and creative change agent who spent 20 years as a spiritual leader at Westchester Reform Temple in Scarsdale, New York. Before that, during his tenure as the rabbi of the Brooklyn Heights Synagogue, he created the first homeless shelter in a New York City synagogue. Rabbi Jacobs is a tireless advocate for an Israel that is secure, Jewish, democratic, and pluralistic with a vibrant reformed Jewish community. He has studied for two decades at the Shalom Hartman Institute, where he is a senior rabbinic fellow. Now, Rabbi Jacobs and Orly, we have decided that we're gonna go with first names this evening. So now that I have read your incredible credentials, we're gonna get real friendly here, okay? So Rick, I want to start with you. What we wanna talk about tonight is, I'm gonna do this kind of in, um, let's organize it. We're gonna start with talking about religion and kind of collective reform movement conversation. We're gonna move into relationships between religion and politics. And we're gonna move ultimately into, I would say Hartman's favorite subject, which is Jewish peoplehood, okay? So we'll try to get everywhere along those tracks, even if we don't hit every stop within each of those. That's what we're trying to do writ large. So let's start with Reform Judaism as a denomination and much to the chagrin of my South American, Australian and Canadian friends, I'm going to start with a question about American Reform Judaism, okay? The question is, what do you think are its greatest successes right now? And what do you think are its greatest challenges? First of all, it's great to be here. It just feels so much like home and um, with a beloved colleague uh, and a wonderful teacher of mine. So thank you. You gave us introductions. Somebody should make sure for your bio. I'm Alana. I work here. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say there are a lot of things I would share, but I'm trying to distill uh, the reform movement. As you heard, we're the largest movement in North American Jewish life. By the way, we're North American, not American, because we're Canada and U.S. And I would say if you looked before World War II, we were far from the largest. After World War II, we really grew dramatically. And the growth really is also not just from within, but we've had a lot of uh, immigration from outside the reform movement. Uh, many people who grew up in very traditional backgrounds, some who grew up in Yiddish, you know, socialist homes, some who grew up in other faith traditions. So one of the great strengths for us is that we are a big tent and that we work hard to not just be a welcoming tent, but be a tent that really puts our arms out and tries to pull in 
the true diversity of the Jewish people, many of whom have yet to find a place that really is home. So part of that growth has been from, I think, also our adaptive kind of vision for Jewish life. One of my predecessors, Rabbi Alexander Schindler, in the late 1970s, when the Jewish community was already getting very panicked about intermarriage, and the Jewish community as a whole was doing this, Rabbi Schindler said, that's not a good Jewish stance in the world. Let's bring into our midst anyone who's hungry, who's searching, who's seeking. And it was a powerful way to reframe. I also think that I'll use words that I'm sure no matter where you sit in the Jewish spectrum, you hopefully can use those words about where you live. But I think the reform movement today is joyful. It's purposeful. It's growing and it's deepening. And I'm really especially proud of the deepening. Because as we think about Jewish life, by being a big tent, it means that everybody has a place within. But some people are just starting out their Jewish journeys within our whole structure. And our goal is to bring them not just in, but in and then deeper. So for us, it's a community of learners and a learning community. It's a place where ritual is alive and changing. It's a place where social justice is not a thing that some people do over there. It's woven into the very heart of what we are. And so tonight's conversation for us is a very perfect setup because the idea that, you know, it's one of those things that you could take or leave. We don't say that about Jewish learning, right? Jewish learning, everybody's got that in their basket. Ritual of some kind, we have that. But social justice today is that thing that I think a lot of people have moved to the side and said that's not really core to what being Jewish is all about. So for us, it's the integration. It's the way those things feed each other. For example, the talit I wear every morning is a cloth that I bought in a refugee camp in eastern Chad uh, when I was there uh, witnessing the plight and the survival of the people who made it through the genocide in Darfur. And we were heading out, and I said, stop, I want to buy a talus. My colleague said, Rick, <laughs> you're not going to buy a talus in the middle of Chad, one of the two poorest countries on God's earth. I said, no, look. And there was a little boy selling cloth. So I bought this piece of cloth and got home. My daughter was about to have her bat mitzvah. And we tied the tzitzit together. So when I put on my talit every morning, to me, it reminds me in a ritual way that I'm part of a wider world. And it's my obligation to bring that world together. So again, learning, ritual, kindness within community, and justice, it is a powerful, powerful combination. And to me, that's our strength. And then you probably want to know if there are any weaknesses, and I'll have to sit and really think hard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. you, I, no, we have time. You're we can probably wait. curious about <laughs> that. I would actually say everything I just said, and maybe the flip of that. Because to be truthful, we are so, I think, proud of our inclusivity that one of the challenges is, can we not only be inclusive, but can we also change as rapidly as we need to? The, the Jewish world and the wider religious world is going through a metamorphosis. If you look what's happening in liberal Christianity, it's quite startling. Uh, more churches have been closed uh, per year than you could even imagine, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000. So this is a new religious landscape. So for us, the question is, can we change and adapt to this moment quickly enough to make sure that all those people who identify with us, and there are many who identify who are not currently formally affiliated, right? They, they see what we stand for, they hear what we stand for, they say, that is closest to who I am, but maybe they haven't actually 
acted upon that connection. So for us, can we create all the on-ramps, all the doorways, all the ways for people, and can we make sure that synagogues, we love synagogues, we have 850 that are proudly part of our reform movement, the synagogue can be the most adaptive institution, and it must be in this moment. If the synagogue doesn't rapidly rethink how it does its core work, whether it's membership, learning, the way spirituality, the way community lives, the way justice is practiced, I really think that's the greatest challenge. Not can we change, but can we change fast enough? You know, Orly, when you hear a number like 1.5 million Reformed Jews, and you're here in Israel where denominationalism in general, is, it's just less prominent. Who do you think about as being in your camp of Reform Judaism or really Reform religious action and how did you come to affiliate yourself as a Reformed Jew? Yeah, so hi everyone, good evening. It is such a pleasure to be here. I spoke with Alana before, and I think maybe we should start with my personal story, because like many Israelis, I grew up in a secular family. I was, by the way, born um, in Ottawa, Canada, in the middle of the winter. That's why probably I really, really hate cold weather. Um, but I came back to Israel as a baby and grew up in a completely secular family and didn't know anything about Reform Judaism growing up. Um, and only when I moved to Mevaseret Zion, a suburb of Jerusalem, 23 years ago, when I was looking for a preschool for my uh, oldest son, who was then three, people told me you should go to the Reform Preschool. That's the best preschool in Mevaseret. And I was a little apprehensive. I wasn't sure what I was be, to be expected. But I, I sent my son there and then my, my other kids too, and it was great, and that's how I joined the Reform Congregation in Mavaseret And a couple of years later, when I was looking for a job as a lawyer in social change, I asked my rabbi whether she has any recommendations, and she said, you have to talk to uh, the Israel Religious Action Center. And she sent me to two people, uh, Anat Hoffman and Rabbi Gilad Kariv, uh, who was then a newly uh, rab new rabbi, um, and that's what I did, and that was 2004, um, and that's where I found my home, my professional home. I've been there ever since, and I really found a place which allows me to work in social change, to address injustices in Israeli society through my Jewish values. Um, and I, I grew into being, you know, a reformed Jew over the years. I've been a, a member of um, the board of my congregation for, for many years. Um, and I think this is a typical story for a lot of Israelis. So I think a lot of Israelis uh, did not know about Reform Judaism, but this is changing dramatically. You probably know the saying that the synagogue most Israelis don't go to is Orthodox. I think this is not true anymore. So if at all the synagogue most Israelis don't go to, it's also reforming conservative because today Israelis have more and more alternatives. So it's true that most Israelis would not be congregation members in the sense that they would pay dues, but for you know their life cycle events, for holidays, they would usually, more and more people would choose an egalitarian uh, option. And according to surveys, uh, we're talking about 13% of Israelis who identify as either conservative or reform. So that's around 800,000 Israelis. That's a very large segment of Israeli society. And that's a dramatic increase if you look back a decade ago. So we see that Israelis are more and more taking ownership of how to express their Judaism, how to practice their Judaism. And that happens even though the state, you know, confronts us or gives us only usually one option to express our Judaism. And we, you know, that's part of what we at the Israel Religious Action Center have been fighting for, freedom of religion and really showing Israelis that there is more, more than one way to be Jewish. 
I think this is changing more and more. And Rick spoke about, of course, our social action, which is you know, what we do. And I think that even more Israelis uh, identify with our issues, with our social action issues. As, and that's also a camp which is growing dramatically. And I think this is especially true these days uh, when you know, we're seeing hundreds of thousands of Israelis going out to the streets really talking about the values that we have been, you know, talking about for so many years. And we knew that so many Israelis are sharing them, but now actually people are showing with their feet that they are for equality, they are for freedom of religion, they are for Israel as a liberal, democratic, and truly pluralistic Jewish society. And this is, I think, a very good news for Israel, for the liberal camp in Israel, and for from Judaism. So, so let's actually, let's talk about religion and politics, right? Because we, we bo you both went right there both sign of the times and also deep in the DNA of the movement, right? Here's what I'm wondering, Orly. A lot of people spend their time saying what they don't like about the current vision of religion and politics in Israel. Can you give us, what is your vision for a Jewish state? How should religion show up in the public square? Meaning, I know how it shouldn't. How should it show up? And one of the reasons why I'm asking that is because I think that for a crowd that is not Israeli, primarily, the idea that religion should be public at all is a little bit of a, you know, let's be careful here, because who knows what that leads to. And yet I'm looking at things that you do, like try to get state funding for conservative and reform rabbis, which is saying, bring it on church and state, let's bring them together in some way. So can you give us some insight into your vision? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and again, going back to the protests, I think also bringing a positive vision is extremely important always, and especially today, not only saying what the government is doing is terrible, but what do we offer to the Israeli public? And our vision is, you know, not separating completely religion and state. We don't want this for the Jewish state, but we want the institutional separation between the religion and state, meaning that no religious stream would be part of the government, okay? We know that the, one of the biggest problem here in Israel is that we have the chief rabbinate, which is part of the government, a monopoly which really takes religion uh, and bring it to the extreme, uh, corrupts it, and literally make people draw far from religion rather than bring them closer. So in our vision, uh, it's okay for the state to fund religious services and to be part of the religion, but it cannot prefer one denomination on one stream over the other. So the funding and the treatment should be equal all the way. And, you know, literally every person would be able to choose under, you know, a uh, competition which would be fair because all streams would receive the same funding and the same treatment. And there we could really compete and each one could decide what he or she wants. I wanted to sh share two more points on the issue of the chief rabbinate. I think what we have been seeing over the past decades is a growing extremism of the rabbinate, making many, many people, even Orthodox people, draw away from it. Um, and it now uh, basically just represents a very small segment of Israelis who identify with ultra-Orthodox Judaism in, in one sense. And we see it in many respects, one of the most troubling in the growing incitement that rabbis in formal posts here in Israel who are part of the public service incite against different groups in Israeli society. They incite against the reform movement and against our congregations. This is especially true these days. And those expressions are not just expressions which are in and of themselves terrible. They are translated into, into hate crimes. Just today it was published 
that was a hate crime here in the congregation, Kola Neshama, here in Jerusalem, um, uh, in Baka, uh, twice in one week. People uh, got into the synagogue building, broke into the building, vandalized it, tore fried flag uh, that was there. And it happened here just a few streets away because people keep hearing how reformed Jews are basically the Satan and, you know, uh, are, um, are horrible, horrible curses, and they translate into hate crimes. So we hear rabbis saying those awful things, rabbis who are employed by the state. We see rabbis talking against the LGBTQ community. We see rabbis talking against Arabs against Israeli Palestinians, and we have uh, had a lot of proceedings against such rabbis saying that this is not our Judaism and that this should not be allowed, especially not as part of the state system. The second thing I wanted to say about the chief rabbinate is that for many years what we have tried to do is to get a foot uh, at the door within the rabbinate and its institutions. So there are religious councils all across Israel which are supposed to be in charge of religious services to the residents. And for many years, we have tried to put representatives, reform and conservative representatives in those councils. In the end, we figured it doesn't make any sense, first of all, because even if there was one representative, they couldn't change anything. And also because once there was a liberal representative, the councils just did not convene. They found you know, a lot of ways to just uh, overcome it. Uh, and what we do for the past decade or so is really just not try to get there, but build our own strong mechanism or alternative and demand equal treatment for that. And we have had a lot of successes in this regard, uh, making the state fund our rabbis, fund our synagogues. And the interesting thing is that this has paved the way for modern, modern orthodoxy or moderate orthodoxy to have their own uh, religious services outside of the chief rabbinate, because for many people, this is not something that expresses their um, beliefs. So, you know, we won uh, our cases of uh, recognizing our conversions. So we have now orthodox conversions outside the chief rabbinate, and we have marriages outside the chief rabbinate, and we broke the monopoly of the rabbinate over kashrut, and now we have orthodox kashrut outside the chief rabbinate. And uh, so this is really shows you that, you know, this fight for more than one way to be Jewish really serves all streams of Judaism and Israelis from all walks of life. And just a clarifying question. When you say, we got this done, we got that done, we're talking about work you did through the judiciary, right? For sure, yeah. Meaning, oh. I want people to really feel that. When we're talking about judicial reform and the judiciary in Israel, what we're talking about is how can you have values that it could be that those are getting more popular, but basically represent a minority voice to be able to pass what they want passed. The judiciary is the answer to that question. Yes, for right. sure. Almost, yeah, all of the yeah. achievements I mentioned, I mean, 99% of our achievements have been achieved through the courts because we do not, uh, we, as, as you said, we have a lot of support, but politically, we are a minority, okay? We're not represented as maybe we should have been uh, in the Knesset, and that's why we need to go to the court every time we are fighting for the rights of reformed Jews or Israeli-Palestinians or LGBTQ or women, in all of those instances when we go and challenge discriminatory practices by the government or by municipalities or by other public authorities, we have only the courts that we can resort to. Without the courts, we would not have been able to do any of the things I've talked and I'm going to talk about. So yeah. that's a tremendously important uh, point. And it's so funny. I mean, at some point, it's going to be revealed that I am an Orthodox Jew who is interviewing these wonderful reform leaders and the way that the community that I affiliate with 
talks about the judiciary is very, very different in terms of the sense of being abandoned by the judiciary. But I just, I want us to experience as a peoplehood conversation, how core to people's identity this judicial overhaul issue is. It's so real and we're gonna get to it later. Thank you for opening that. Rick, I want you to weigh in, this, in on this, but I also wanna push you on North America. May push, I? Push. Okay, so <laughs> let's talk about the saddling of politics and religion in North America. Whoa, right? It's, you're in this party, if you're this denomination, you're in that party, if you're that denomination, you're not really sure what denomination you're in, if you're not really sure what party you're in, right? Can you talk a little bit about the advantages of that linking of religion and politics or really political strategy and political goals and religious goals? And what are some of the challenges of it? So first of all, framing it as sort of politics and religion um, already kind of puts it in other categories. Right. I would actually say, to me, politics is a, a form of, I would say, societal ethics. What are the values that are being lived out in the public sphere? And to me, how in the world could a person of faith, wherever you are on a faith continuum, how could you not be deeply engaged with what is being shaped in terms of public morality. So for us, first of all, it's not about which party you happen to you know, align with, and then we, we send you an email and say, okay, well, if you're with <laughs> this party, then you're gonna believe these 12 things. It's not that, of course. And to me, partisan politics, is the, that's the red flashing light. Partisan politics, if I get up and give a drashah on Shabbat or on the Chagim, and I start talking not about poverty, not about gun violence, but I start literally spewing out talking points that come right out of the political frame, as opposed to grounding whatever it is that I want to say in the values of our tradition. And our values obligate us in the public sphere. Uh, obviously, personal morality is critical, uh, familial, even in our, quote, tribes, to use you know, President Rivlin's terms. But what happens out there, that only is something for me to be not just casually concerned about, and what's being done in, quote, our name. So I think, first of all, we do speak up and we do lobby. Today, there was a release of a, uh, it's a survey every year by the Jewish Electoral Institute. And they start, you know, assessing what is the number one issue on the minds of Jewish voters. Uh, can I just do a little thing? Call out if you think you know what the number one thing is for Jewish voters on their minds as they head to elections, whether it be local, municipal, or you know, state or federal. Just let me just hear some of the possibilities. Abortion, Abortion anti-Semitism, economy, economy, democracy. Democracy was number one. Economy was number two. Then you drop down and you have things like gun violence, preventing gun violence. Abortion is right up there. So it's not to say that there is one Jewish view of all those, but there obviously we're at the Hartman Institute. So hello. There yeah. actually are lots of different voices within the tradition. So how do we open that conversation as a values textual underpinning? But that, let's not leave it in the Beit Midrash. I mean, if we leave it in the Beit Midrash and say, I'm sure the nice people that are elected will do the right thing. Oh, why? Excuse me, <laughs> on what planet is that a plan? Totally. And what planet is that a responsible yeah. Jewish stance in the world? Right. But I do think we have this vilification of, you know, kind of the political Judaism. 
And I would say, first of all, it's a larger conversation in North America because it's, it's not just Jewish and political, it's Christian and political, uh, particularly, in, certainly in the United States. So this is something that's happening in a very problematic way, I think, where it's just fused together, and we actually don't have the differentiation or even the underpinning of what actually gives us a voice. And even for the abortion debate, I mean, can I just say the, uh, the breakdown by denomination for abortion, 97%, I believe, of uh, the reform movement is in favor of greater abortion rights. And again, there are some within the modern Orthodox and certainly the conservative movement. So there's some issues that there's greater consensus and others that there's just a lot of just deep division. But rather than just kind of like hope for the best, we do lobby. Uh, we've actually spent two days lobbying here in the beloved Jewish state. And that doesn't mean we come in with a, a Tanakh and we start, you know, clopping people over the head saying, you know, you got to do this. But to say, here are the things we deeply care about from our Jewish convictions. And here's how we think those convictions could get lived out in the public sphere. So we do that over there. Guess what? It fits in the suitcase. You can even take it on the plane. You can put it right over your seat. Those same values, they work here too. Sure. What I think is kind of remarkable about it is to think about weaving uh, the tapestry of American society using reformed Jewish values, meaning it's one thing to say, I wanna change Israel, the Jewish state. It's another thing to say, we want American Jewish values of the reform variety as you're describing to shape America in some way. And it shows a profound at-homeness. My question is, how do we avoid the partisanship? How, what do we do about those issues where you don't have 97% agreement? How do people talk about them? within the reform movement. So I can just say that I spent most of my career as a congregational rabbi, two beautiful communities, one in Brooklyn, New York, and one in Westchester, New York. And so I understand that diversity. That was my community in both, both settings. And I think it's also how we invoke the sources and how we make arguments. To me, if someone says, you know, that was a illegitimate drashah, an illegitimate sermon, uh, because I gave a very specific set of value obligations around combating poverty. I'll just take something that I think is beyond anyone to say. The Jewish tradition has nothing to say about poverty. It has enormous kind of tomes to say about poverty. Uh, someone could say, I, I thought you maybe invoked only some of the sources, but you can't make the case that that's not a profoundly Jewish issue. And I think part of it is how, I'll just speak for myself, when I also leave open, and even in the drashah or a teaching, to bring the divrei acher, bring the other voices of the tradition. I think that already says, you know, it's not me giving the definitive interpretation of, you know, 3,000 years of Jewish wisdom. It's, excuse me, this is my reading of the sources. This is my reading of the values that animate me. And I know that there are others who have competing views. That's not something I want to hide. I want to actually lay that out. I think that sometimes really deflates the, uh, the partisanship. But I don't know if people paid attention. In the United States, there was a, a particular uptick in partisan tension. And I found lots of rabbis avoiding lots of subjects because it was just too hot to handle. And people just, as soon as you even said a word, presumed that they you know, saw what was behind it. And I think for us, we've got to figure out not only how to talk about the hard things, but how to argue really argue with arguments and values and texts. 
uh, and to do it in a place where it doesn't demonize someone who holds a different view. We're not going to have the, you know, the drasha I give about the Shoah. I'm not going to invite a Holocaust denier because, you know, I want to get, get everybody into the conversation. At some point, it's right, ridiculous. A, it's ridiculous. Right. But there are... But where more, do you have a range there's that more you want to respect or relationships that you want to hold on to? And in order to hold those relationships, to be able to bring those people in. Yeah, I, w I wanted to add, because sort of it rings a note with me about what happened here in the reform movement in Israel, in our congregations, around the protest. Okay, so the protest has started at the very beginning of January or at the end of December, once this government has been sworn in. And the Israeli reform movement passed a, a very brave decision right at the very beginning of joining the protest. And now, I mean, it's of course, everybody's like, of course, we should, we should be against the government. The first days, it wasn't clear. And at first, we had a lot of repercussions from some of our rabbis. And they said, well, we don't know. Maybe some of our congregations are for the government. We are afraid to talk about it in our drasha because it may push people away. We want to have a wide tent. We have to have all of us together. And we've had a lot of interesting discussions with our rabbis. And, and some of the issues that were raised were like, of course, we have a big wide tent, but not all opinions are legitimate, right? I mean, if people come to the shul and are saying we are against LGBTQ rights, well, the rabbis will say we're sorry because we accept LGBTQ people to our congregation. So it's clear that we have to have sort of a basic sort of agreement about what is allowed and what isn't. And we went through this interesting process of having more and more congregations and rabbis sort of on board with us. Uh, and it took people a few weeks, but it was pretty quick. And uh, within maybe two or three weeks, people said, we understand that we are in a completely different situation, that it may be sort of a political decision. And by the way, we immediately told them, told them you know, being a reformed Jew in Israel is a political issue. It's a political right. statement. It's a political right. action. Having a girl have a bat mitzvah, that a political action. Entering a reform synagogue is a political action. So, And people understood that this is not a regular time. This is a time like never before and a time that you have to raise a voice if you care about the values of freedom and dignity and equality for all Israelis. But the, this interesting process sort of reminds me of what you said about, you know, whether what is allowed to talk within the synagogue and what are we going out to the streets in the name of Reform Judaism? Yeah. Well, I'm interested in the question of when you go out into the streets in the name of Reform Judaism here, who are your allies? Because you do mention, and I, I listened to a speech that you gave in Central Synagogue a few uh, months ago, and you assured the crowd most people are on our side, right? Meaning, don't worry. So who, who are the allies in this? And I'm curious, you work on a whole suite of issues. Are there some people with whom you can ally on issue X, but you can't really ally on issue Y? Can you give us a, like more of a nuanced sense of what the landscape looks like? Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, when I said that most Israelis are with us, I meant that especially when you look now around us, you see that most Israelis are for women's rights and they're for religious pluralism and they're for LGBTQ rights. I think the issue of fighting racism is a little more complicated. But most Israelis are against, by the way, the judicial reform or coup, especially the way it's being conducted by the government. And most Israelis want the government to sit down with the opposition and reach an agreement rather than having, you know, one side crush the other. So that's what I meant when I said most Israelis are with us. We are working on a variety of issues and we have a lot of coalition with many, many organizations. Our main issues are religious pluralism, fighting gender segregation, fighting racism, 
and assisting new immigrants and converts. And for each issue, we have cooperation with a whole lot of organizations. And it's true, Alana, that there are, of course, organizations which you know cooperate with us on issue of freedom of religion, which would not cooperate with us on issue of racism because they either they do not deal with this or they would not necessarily agree with what we are doing or agree with our tactics or, or with our strategy. I, I think the interesting uh, example I want to give about the shift in Israeli public opinion you know, the issue is on the issue of women's rights. So we have been fighting uh, gender segregation and exclusion of women in the public sphere for almost two decades. And when we started to fight uh, this phenomenon, and it started with uh, segregation on buses, you know, the Mahadrin bus lines where women were asked or ordered to board the bus from the back door and sit at the back of the bus, we started to deal with this the, um, around 2002. And most Israelis did not understand what's the point. They said, well, it's a few bus lines, let the Haredi live, live the, the, the way they want. What do you care? Why are you talking on their behalf? And it was amazing because people from outside of Israel, especially people from uh, the U.S., were just shocked that actually this practice exists here. We took the case to court and then we had ultra-Orthodox women call us and thank us because they were against this practice but did not have anyone to raise a voice against it. So we won the case and then we had a lot of other cases on issues of ex exclusion of women. And we saw that over time, the Israeli public opinion shifted dramatically. And today, I mean, even before the protests and especially during the protests now, people are not willing to accept those practices anymore and are completely on board with us like they have never been before. Wow. So if just a couple of uh, weeks ago, it was published that a pharmacy in Bnei Brak took hair products which showed images of women on it and put stickers on it because God forbid you can't see faces of women on hair products in a pharmacy, there was such an outrage of the Israeli public that within two days, they took the stickers off. So something that was considered legitimate a few years ago, just not, you know, go now without, without change, and commercial companies, and also the government, they are responding to what the public is saying. And this shift is public op in public opinion is, I think, is really makes me optimistic because you, you see that I think it's partly because of our struggles for many, many years and because of the current atmosphere that you see that we are against a government which is extremist and also misogynistic and homophobic. And Israelis understand they have to raise a voice. And we have the power now as, uh, you know, the, the liberal camp raising a voice together, and this can create change. So, you know, all those coalitions and, and um, cooperations that we had over the years, are we really seeing the fruits now, um, and that's you know, it's, tremendous. It's such a funny thing, because you, you work in enforcement, essentially, right? You work in legalizing and banning, and I work in education. So when you're an educator and you ask yourself whose faces aren't being shown, right? I have to tell you, just between us and the wall and everybody who's listening, I learned Mishnah with my children out of this fabulous, fabulous Mishnah for Kids book. And you know, there's women in it, but not enough for my liking. So we take stickers <laughs> of women and girls and also cats and also people who don't necessarily look like all the people who are in there already and we put the stickers in. So I just, we're doing it. We're just so, each doing it our own way. I actually right? wanted, we're that doing really it. reminds me of a really nice story. We represented a group of Orthodox women in Beit Shemesh uh, in a, the struggle against modesty signs, which are hung on the streets on Beit Shemesh, of Beit Shemesh, which is sort of half Haredi, half modern Orthodox, secular and Masorti. 
It wasn't easy, by the way, for Orthodox women to be represented by the reform movement, but we grew very close together and they were very, very thankful for what we have done. We've represented them for over a decade. And at one point, they were so sick and tired of the fact that you don't see in the streets of Pechemish images of women that they went to, you know, with the entrance to the city, there were huge billboards showing, it was like an uh, ad advertisement to a new construction building, huge billboards showing men and boys. So they went to a print shop, printed huge images of women I love and it. said, oh my God, this poor boy, he doesn't have a mother, let's give him a mother. And, the, <laughs> oh. and they literally went out and did this. And it, this was so, oh so amazing. Goodness. That yeah. is absolutely yeah. amazing. It is. Okay. Let's talk about Israel and North American Jews, right? Let's talk about it. You know, Rick, you gave this impassioned speech. I mean, I had to prepare for this, so I, I got the real joy of watching the two of them address the other's community. I mean, you spoke, how many people were at that rally in Tel Aviv? It, it, was, like a, it was like a typical Friday night at most everybody's shul. It was like yeah. 160,000 people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> It was an off night, what and, can I say? you know, you're talking, we are with you. The reform movement will never abandon you. We support you from back there. Let's talk about the future of Zionism in North American reform Judaism. What are you seeing? What are you expecting? What are interventions that are happening? Wait, let's get beyond the niceties. We know that it's really hard right now for North American Jews to connect with Israel in the ways that they used to. So let me just go back, if I could, to Tel Aviv that Please? Saturday night, because Please. what was really powerful is I was invited to give that talk. I was the first non-Israeli to speak at a protest, and I wasn't sure how I'd be received, to be honest. I mean, and when I started, there was a, a, a quiet chanting that grew louder. I didn't know what they were saying because I was kind of just focusing on, you know, just getting through my talk. And I'm thinking to myself, they're probably saying, Reform Rabbi, go home. Reform Rabbi, go home. <laughs> and they're thinking like, this you know, is like the trauma. enough, this enough. Is and finally, when I finished and I was walking down, I actually could hear what they were saying. They were saying, Todah Rabbah, Todah Rabbah, thank you. One of the first times we were invited not only to show up, but to speak and to speak words from love for something, but also critical. Those were things were not allowed, I'm just gonna tell you, a year ago, Yes. 10 years ago. And I'm not going to suggest that it's, it's changed now forever, but that's already a very different dynamic. So let's be really clear. In North America, Jewish democratic isn't like one of those. We just need one of those. Whichever one you have is fine. Jewish and democratic, they go together. They are inseparable for us. And our Jewish is also informing our democratic. And our democratic is also informing our Jewish. So I think for a lot of North American Jews who've watched this new government take not only shape, but take stands that are so anathema to their core Jewish convictions. And for us, one of the big moves is to say, your connection to Israel isn't to a politician, a party, or a policy, but to the people and the values upon which this country are built. But it's a tough slog, particularly last week, you know, when frankly, our brothers and sisters are murdered outside of elite, and then all hell breaks loose. And basically, what has been described as pogroms happen with Jewish hands. So I think it's a pretty fraught moment for our communities. Um, but I, I, I met with a, a, a person from this government, and I, I said to this person, 
here's the good news. You're stuck with me. You're stuck with non-Orthodox Jews. You're stuck with non-Orthodox Reform and Conservative Jews. And guess what? We're the largest group. And guess what else? We love Israel. We love not necessarily what your government is doing, but we love the Zionist, not dream, but the Zionist enterprise. And I said, now here's, here's the bad news for me. I'm stuck with you. Because you're, you're also <laughs> part great. of the Jewish people. And I can rail, I can, I can just, I can cry, but we're stuck in this. And I think one of the things that we're busy doing in North America, first of all, right at the moment, we've got more young people in the country. And guess what? They're also falling in love with Israel, not with every aspect of it, because we want them to have eyes wide open to see what is here, see what is unbelievable and inspiring, and that which is maddening. I mean, the things that Orly works on every single day. I've seen this woman in the Supreme Court. If you want to see awesome, watch her argue in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court that this judicial reform wants to basically not just change a little bit, but really take out its, uh, its core. So I think for us, it's a real repositioning, but what we're doing is leaning in and, and leaning into the things that actually are foundational for Zionism, like the core commitments to Jewish peoplehood. Like this is part of our extended Jewish family. And also we have the largest Jewish community on planet earth here. So we are, we are in this relationship, but this government is pushing us away every day with so many decisions, so many voices that are so filled with things that to us are opposite to what we deeply believe. And so that makes it challenging. And the easier thing would be to just kind of pack it all up and say, you know what? We'll worry about things happening here in uh, Utica, Mississippi, more than we're going to worry about what happens in Ramat Gan. But I don't think that's a responsible Jewish position, but it's a hard new chapter for all of us to, to really build together. I, yeah, I wanted to say I was next to Rick when he gave this, the speech at the rally in Tel Aviv. And I can tell you that afterwards, yeah, when we went out to try to get a cab and we had Israeli stop Rick and told him, thank you so much. And I experienced from my point of view, it was so moving for me to see how Israelis responded and told him it was so important to us to learn that our fellow brothers and sisters in North America are with us, that we're not alone in the struggle. And this in and of itself gives us so much energy to continue to fight for our shared values. And I think that for many years, you know, maybe Israelis had a lot of opinions as to whether the diaspora Jews should have a say. I think now this has changed. I think now people understand that Jews from outside of Israel have a seat at the table. This is a country not only of Israelis, but of Jews from all over the world. And what I keep saying is that under the current circumstances, I think that is not only your right to talk about those issues, it is your duty. Because if you care, if you love Israel, if you're concerned about Israel, you should raise the voice now because we have to make sure Israel stays the democracy for all of us. I mean, this is a project, a joint project. And when we see someone we love who is in danger or is doing something problematic, we have to tell him that he's wrong. And when I was last March in, in, in a trip in America, both in the West Coast and the East Coast, people were very apprehensive. They asked, what can we do? And they wanted me to, I mean, they wanted to hear, we want to hear your voice. We want you around the table because they were like, could we say it? Could we criticize Israel? And I said, this is the time to do so before it's too late. So we, we really feel, I mean, on both sides of the ocean that we have this project together and we have, this is a time like never before, 
where we have to go out to the streets and you have to speak up and you know together we can keep Israel a democracy. So what I think is so interesting about this is the description at one of one in the same time of government pushing you away but the people pulling you in. And I would imagine that the people who are in government now there was a time at which the American Jews who support them felt the same way. The government was pushing them away, but their allies in Israel on the right were pulling them in. So I just think it's maybe worth thinking about as Jews who live outside of Israel, can we connect in more than one way? I Meaning sometimes we're connecting through support of the government, sometimes we're connecting through support of the people. They're not the same thing always. They're not the same thing. And I, I want us also to hold that as a different way of talking about connecting to Israel. You know, I'm curious, I want people in the crowd, by the way, think about the questions that you wanna ask. We wanna give you time to ask questions in a couple of minutes. I wanna ask you, I wanna get to a peoplehood question here, okay? So it's always in the air for me working at Hartman because I'm in a pluralistic environment, but I'm generally in the minority as an Orthodox Jew, generally speaking. And the question of Jewish peoplehood is such a big one here because whether you're talking about America or you're talking about Israel, in the broad swaths, what we are looking at is a culture clash between the Orthodox and the liberal streams. It's true. On the issue of abortion, look at the amicus briefs. I've looked at them, right? Aguda, Orthodox, Rack, Reform. Where modern Orthodox people find themselves, we're always confused in trying to figure out who we belong to, right? And who we want to ally ourselves with. Here, come on, who's supporting judicial reform? How do we do this peoplehood thing? You might say now is not the time. You might say we can't think about peoplehood right now, but I love the makeup of our panel because we're trying to support each other and care about each other. Even when you know, you're saying how fast can we change? I belong to a community that's like, how slow can we change? <laughs> and yet we share these, we don't want segregation on buses. I mean, so how do you do the peoplehood thing with the people you have to stand against in the Supreme Court? How do you do it? Like really for yourselves, I'm asking. Because I, I have equal and opposite conversations with people on the other side. And I say, how are you gonna do this peoplehood thing? Because Israel is not just a partisan game. It's a peoplehood practice and discourse. So what do you think? You know, I think for me, the divide is not denominational. It's really between moderate people who believe in moderation or in extremism. And I gave the example of Beit Shemesh, and it was a good example because for us to be together in the fight against people who, you know, use the modesty signs to spit at women and throw stones at them and curse them, it doesn't matter what denomination you are, it's either you are for women's rights and against extremism and zealotry or you're the other side. So I think this cooperation is a good example that you cross denominational lines to fight together for the values we believe in. And I think you see it now in the streets of Israel and especially here at the streets of Jerusalem. I don't know if you've been to the protest uh, in, in, in Shabbat in Jerusalem, but in Jerusalem you see so many Orthodox people going out to the streets, For sure. fighting against the judicial coup. Um, and you have people on the other side as well, but you have people of other denominations, of course, secular and Masorti, sure. um, and Orthodox, and you know some, some maybe liberal Jews who are there, not a lot. 
And I think what brings us together now is the belief that we have to you know, go around those central values that we cannot compromise on. And that is common for people from all walks of Israeli society. And I think that maybe the, the Tel Aviv protest is more homogenous and less you know, diverse than here. But I think that here you see a lot of people from really all walks of life. And it brought out to the streets people that were never activists before and would never even identify as liberal, people who believe in liberal values. And in this sense, I think I'm hopeful because I think it goes beyond those lines. I mean, we have other divisions which are problematic. And I was going to say, that's the next, right. the next frontier is what do you do? Right. It's a, we there. are. On the other hand, we do now, a lot of people now understand what's important. What are the things that we should vote on for the next elections? Okay, we had, you know, last week elections uh, for the Bar Association and we won. That was sort of the first test of actual power of the protest to bring, you know, a person who is pro-democracy and against the judicial coup to head the Bar Association. And we have the next test in a couple of months in the municipal elections. And municipal elections all across Israel are going to be um, held, and that's going to be another test for the liberal camp. Could we join forces together in different municipalities, you know, liberal Jews and Orthodox Jews who believe in those values of live and let live and of freedom of religion, and join together and make sure we elect the mayor and we elect our representatives to make our lives as we want them to be. So I think we have a lot of opportunities now to join forces you know, we have a lot of uh, disagreements with other sectors of Israeli society, that's true. And the polarization is like never before, but this polarization also made it crystal clear for many of us what's important, what are the things that we should fight for. And that's, I think, a, a giant step forward. It's beautiful. So I'm just going to start the people at question back in North America among ourselves as Jewish people in North America, because I don't have to come here to be stretched. And I think to the degree to which we are actively stretching ourselves to experience the fullness of Jewish peoplehood wherever we live. I'll just give an example. So I was a rabbi in Westchester for almost 20 years. And um, I literally had just unpacked my books and my local Orthodox colleague invited me to speak at his synagogue on Shabbat. I didn't know this guy from Adam. And I thought to myself, Ooh, this could be, I could be the sacrificial offering. This is really, (laughs) this is really exciting. You know, I could be, I could start and I could end all in the same few months. So I I said to him, I said, I don't know you well. Thank you for the invitation. It was so lovely. But can I, what's the plan here? He said, well, I thought um, you would speak about what you love about orthodoxy and I would speak about what I love about reform. So then, you know, a little chutzpah, I said, well, I have a lot to say. Do you have something to say in that category? He goes, I'll go first. He gets up for half an hour, talks about what he loves authentically about us. Not, you know, yeah. you have nice buildings. And yeah. I really like the way you speak English. It's beautiful. Um, and then it's my turn. And I, of course, talk a lot about the Hartman Institute. And I talk about Rabbi David Hartman, who's the reason I'm a rabbi. Because when I was a junior in college, I walked into his seminar on Mount Scopus on Spinoza, Maimonides, and Halevi, and I never left. <laughs> it just drew me in. So that relationship led to, I invited him to come to my son's bar mitzvah, who, you know, was in our reform synagogue with a really amazing cantor named Angela Bookdahl. <laughs> He'd never been in a reform synagogue, and he literally left his Shabbos morning and said, I have to go, and didn't say I don't feel well, I'm gonna go take a nap, I'm gonna go to the Kiddush club. 
He said, I'm going to go now to Westchester Reformed Temple because my friend's son is having his bar mitzvah. And then he walked out. And can you imagine? This is a young Israel of Scarsdale. And he just put it right out there in public. And so when I you know, went to speak there, people said, you can't go to speak there, right? They have a mechitza. I said, I know, but my friend's daughter uh, is getting married and they're having an ofruf. And my chavruta, my colleague, my friend invited me. So I'm going to go. Of course I'm going to go. I don't tell you that story to virtue signal. I'm telling you that story because, as Brian Stevenson said, get proximate. We have got to figure out how we do that diversity thing among the Jewish people. Yes. And it's not going so well. And then when I get here, if I have positive things that have stretched me, I can function much better in the pluralism of this place, which doesn't actually hold pluralism as the value that we hold there. But I think the sense of Jewish peoplehood happens around anti-Semitism. You know, um, just this past Shabbat in Macon, Georgia, there was a group of neo-Nazis surrounded the Reform Synagogue right before Shabbat Tefillah. And luckily, we were able to get, you know, local law enforcement. They showed up again the next day, and the Christian and the Muslim, everybody came together to stand with the Jewish community, and then they were dispersed again. They went to Chabad. So in a beautiful way, the Reform Rabbi, Liz Bahar, reaches out to the Chabad saying, we got a problem together here. So what are the things we can actually stand together for? Great. Stand together for the Jewish state, that there is a Jewish state, thank God, that we can stand together against the rise in anti-Semitism, that we can stand together for all those things, because there are a lot of things we don't line up on. Yeah. But on the most important things, we completely line up. And that is Torah we have to teach, we have to live. And I think that's just a, a little bit tentative here on this side of the ocean, because teaching pluralism in the Israeli schools and the Be'eri program here at the Hartman is bringing that framework to Israelis, whether they're secular, non-Orthodox, modern Orthodox, they, they need those tools. We all need those tools. And we're all in a kind of kita aleph mode on it. Yeah, yeah. To notice that there is no real word in Hebrew for pluralism, right? Pluralism. I mean, yeah, we used to be called the center for Jewish pluralism. That was our, and people were like, what, what's pluralism? Like, people don't right. know this word. And, you know, it's not, right. a, it's not a coincidence because we don't right. practice enough pluralism in this country. Well, before I ask you anything else, I want to see what questions we have out in the crowd. So if everyone could raise their hand, I don't know that we're going to get to everyone, but we're going to try. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over here first and, and try to do a wave that way. So I happen to know Naftali's name. So Naftali, Karen is coming towards you with a mic. And if you could just introduce yourself and, and say who your question is directed to. Hi, my name is Naftali Moster. Um, I'm from New York. Um, my question is to both, I guess mostly to Rabbi Jacobs. We heard a lot about uh, activism here in Israel and activism in the US or North America as it relates to Israel. But I'm wondering, what would it take to get the liberal Jewish community to take the same interest in issues relating to the Haredi community in New York? So we have the same issues. Women being segregated on buses, women's pictures being removed, the lack of education in yeshivas. And it's the fastest growing population. In a few decades, it's gonna be the face of the Jewish people in some aspects in New York politics, it already is. I used to be involved in activism around yeshiva education. And sometimes the Haredi 
activists or leaders would accuse us of having the support of the reform movement. And I said, halavai, I wish. But in reality, whenever we reached out, it was mostly like, eh, it's their issue, you know, it's not our business, or we don't want to intervene. And we were crying out that we needed that intervention. Sounds like you need Orly. That's what it sounds like. Yes, we if need, you have we need time, Everybody needs Orly. If you had time, he's got a project for you. We, we did it here More in than Israel, one, many, yeah. but... But yeah, let's, let's hear them address it. But can I just say, that is a, peop, a perfect peoplehood test, right? Because for us, I live in New York City, and we've had a proliferation of anti-Semitic incidents, mostly against the traditional community in New York. Because as my colleagues would say, we wear Judaism. We're identifiable all the time. I may have a kippah, but I can also put on a baseball cap. So how do we show up for one another, and particularly the non-Orthodox community, that may have a whole you know, kind of set of either misconceptions or maybe lack of experience with the traditional community. This is one of those classic places where we need to show up together. And we may have different ideas about, you know, kind of yeshiva education and the place of, uh, you know, basic learning. But I think that's a beautiful place where in New York we could be doing much more. And actually the mayor of New York City just convened a council, I think it met today for the first time. And it has very many traditional and some liberal and figuring out how can they work together in New York City to make it a much more tolerant place, not just for Jews within the Jewish community, but in the larger. I think that's a great test. And I know in New York, you know, Al Chet Shechatanu, um, I've been to Crown Heights, Borough Park, Williamsburg, and really trying to build bridges that did not exist to the non-Orthodox community. And the danger on their side is to be in a picture with me. The danger on my side is to be in a picture with them. And the goal is where there's no danger. It's just obvious that we're part of one people. And what hurts you hurts me. What hurts me hurts you. And that I think those are just great, tangible ways we do the work. But by the way, I, I can just add that we have actually had a long struggle on the issue of core curriculum here in Haredi School. Uh, we've brought a petition to the court years ago, and we won it, but then the Knesset passed a law really... Um, deciding no curriculum studies. Uh, but it was interesting because a few years ago, modern Orthodox people came to us and said, listen, for the best interest of this issue, we ask you to step aside because once you get into the matter, then people within the Haredi community who want core curriculum were like, okay, that's a reform issue. We, will, we won't discuss, you know, we, we won't do anything with it. So it's interesting that here, just actually people told us just back off because that would maybe allow us to uh, get any, you know, achievements uh, on this issue. We have in the back in the orange shirt. Hi, Rafi Rohn, thanks so much. It's really interesting, it's great to see you both. Um, so this question is for Rabbi Jacobs. No one questions the reform movement, I think, or certainly not you, like love of Israel and passion about Israel. And it's incredible that you were at the demonstration. But I think all of the progressive movements are challenged now with incoming rabbinical students and young rabbis who don't share the same sentiment about Israel. You know, what can you and your Reconstructionist and conservative colleagues, what are you doing to work on that, um, knowing that the challenges that you face in that just a few years ago, it used to be a requirement for them to come and study Still. at least a year here. <laughs> Well, it's still a requirement within the reform movement. The first year is the first year in Israel, and I teach in that first year when I'm here throughout the year. 
Thank you for the question, Rafi, because it's a real thing. So what I hate is when people like me get in front of anybody and say, why aren't our young people more like us? I think it's like a, it's a sport. I mean, I, I hear it all the time, you know. Why can't they just be as committed to, you know, learning as, as I was? Why don't they care about social justice the way I care? Why don't they care? The truth is, it's not their job to care the way I do, but it's, it's absolutely right that they have a different experience of the Jewish state. They grew up in a different time. You know, I lived on Mount Scopus, you know, when the Entebbe rescue happened. I was rushing to the library because I had a paper that was overdue, and my Israeli roommate stopped me and he said, did you hear, did you hear? I said, don't bother me. I got a lot of stuff to do here. Said, no, did you hear? So that was, that was my, I was here when Sadat came to Jerusalem. It, it just shaped my life. My landlady was so anti-anybody Arab, just like, and then the day of the, of the motorcade coming through Rehavia, there's my landlady. She's holding an Israeli flag and an Egyptian flag, and she's waving them both. And I thought <laughs> I was going to die, right? So that's, my, that's, that's the Israel that I experienced. My kids and our proverbial, all of our kids, they have grown up in a completely different... So on the simplest terms, I say we're going to just love them. We're going to learn with them. And we're not going to try and sanitize and uh, download a, a relationship to Israel to them. It's got to grow. So our first year program, I know it's true, help them discover and also face the hardest things. We take them to the hardest places. We want them to see up close and personal, that which is miraculous, that which isn't. And guess what? They're going to talk about Israel differently, and they're going to be authentic Jewish leaders. So I'll just tell you, you said very kindly, Rafi, that you know, there's no question how much I love Israel. Excuse me. Uh, every day within the wider Israeli community, I'm thought of as a hater of Israel. Why? Because I, I don't have a very right-wing view of the Jewish state or the Jewish people or the Jewish tradition, not to put all those together, but I just did, sorry. And so I actually am demonized as someone who doesn't really hold that love. So we also have to kind of broaden our Jewish community's understanding that pro-Israel doesn't mean pro-Likud. I was speaking at a liberal college in the Hudson Valley. That's all I'll say. I won't identify it further. And I finished my talk, and I was with the Q&A, and there was a real kind of hesitancy for people to put their hands up. So finally, a woman in the first row with a hijab put her hand up. She said, Rabbi Jacobs. I'm looking around to see if there's a, a second hand come up, because I, I don't want the hardest one first. I like to just kind of like ease into the Q&A. So I'm looking around, is this that one hand? So I said, yes. She goes, Rabbi Jacobs, are you pro-Israel? I said, 100%. She sat down really angry. There's smoke coming out of her ears. And I said, well, you want to ask me another question? She said, I don't want to ask you another question. I said, no, you do. She said, what question do I want to ask you? I said, you want to ask me if I'm pro-Palestinian? She said, why would I ask you that question? You just told me that you were pro-Israel. They said, well, ask me, are you pro-Palestinian? I said, yes. Why is it that I am 100% for this whole enterprise we call Israel, that that means I have to be anti the dignity and the well-being of the Palestinian people? If that's what we're teaching our young people, and I don't believe we are, and certainly I hope nobody here is teaching that, then honestly, we're already modeling that this is something that, you know, we don't see a future for. So I, I think we have to help our young people. I, I see a lot of my colleagues doing this with them. That just, that's not the thing. Some of our rabbinic students wrote a letter at a very precarious moment. It was actually in, in May of 2021. When I say we, I mean modern Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructing Judaism, renewal, all signed a letter. It wasn't a letter that I would have signed. 
It's not a letter that I would have written, but I made it my business to uh, reach out to all the people who had signed it that I knew and sit with them and talk. Like, I want to understand. And honestly, what, what happened is they were demonized by, and, and a, a number of my colleagues said, we'll never hire any of those. Let's get that name, that list of names, because those are rabbis will never work in our city. Man, that's just not the way. But it's a hard moment, and our young rabbis and our young everyone are really having a different experience, and I think a lot of what our community has done is, first of all, to talk about Israel in a, forgive me, in a cartoonish way. This is not a cartoon. This is an extraordinary place with unbelievable people and a, a, just a, a passion for what we're building here, and it's got really hard things. We've got to stop as a Jewish community sanitizing that and just thinking, like, when we get into those hard things, like, do you say the O word? Ariel Sharon is the first guy who said the O word. I think it was 2005 or 2006 in a public speech. Like, it's a real thing, and I can be 100% pro-Israel, and I have to have a sense of the dignity and well-being of the Palestinian citizens of Israel and the Palestinians who live beyond the Green Line. I think that's already a different conversation. It's not the one I hear all the time or even occasionally in our wider Jewish community, and it's the only way we move forward. I can just add that I think the current special moment really uh, creates an opportunity to maybe bring together some young liberal Jews in America who felt, you know, more less connected to Israel and now watch this amazing energy on the streets and can relate to it, uh, you know, maybe from their own experience in protesting uh, against uh, issues in America. So this can really bring people together, even at this very precarious moment, which might draw people apart, but it could, it could also be a, an opportunity to sort of... I mean, from the American perspective, what we're seeing is people joining demonstrations with Israeli flags. Right. We are demonstrating in the name of Israeli democracy to support Israeli democracy. Not we're demonstrating against the government to support Israeli democracy. Yeah, and, is, and, and by the way, the fact that we have sort of, uh, you know, re, uh, took the flag back, right? The flag was associated yeah. with the right, and now it's, it's you know, it's, it's a symbol of the liberal camp as well. I mean, that's also a, remarkable. a big thing, both here uh, and abroad. All right, what else do we have? Who else do we have? So many, it's great. Sir. Dan Siegel from Philadelphia. First of all, thank you for the really very extraordinary presentations. Um, I'd like to sort of spring off of something that was said just, just at the end by particularly Rabbi Jacobs. We've had discussions really centering on social justice both last night and tonight. And what's very striking to me, you can almost call it the elephant in the room. In all those conversations about social justice, what we haven't talked about at all were social justice issues regarding the occupation. I mean, even last night when we were talking about shared society, the shared society we were talking about is Israeli citizens asking Palestinian Israelis to adopt an Israeli identity and a Palestinian identity, and no mention of the fact that the people we wanted to have a Palestinian identity share that identity with millions of people who are under Israeli rule. And the same thing in the... In Can I push this one to Orly? Because I'm yeah, curious, sure. you do anti-racism work. To what extent is it occupation related? To what extent is it internal to Israel? Right, meaning not just about this program, but I'm curious even about your work, right? Thank yeah. you. 
So, so yeah, we have a large part of our work devoted to um, anti-racism uh, against incitement racism, against racist practices. Most of our work relates to um, issues within Israel, so within the Green Line. In general, we don't deal with issues over in the West Bank. What we do uh, address are uh, the really horrible instances of uh, settlers' violence, uh, which uh, uh, Rick just mentioned. So we did address the issue that happened just a few days ago. Uh, and this is something we have been uh, dealing with for, for quite a while. I think that in general, Israelis now, uh, even many Israelis that were indifferent to the issue of the occupation or have started try to ignore it, understand that things that happen in the West Bank penetrate Israel. So that's a lot of things that people are talking about right now. The fact that you cannot sort of separate the two issues, but that, you know, that's a problem that is going to have repercussions here in Israel and that, you know, we see it very clearly with this current government. And I think that in a way, Israelis are now connecting the dots and understanding that all of the issues are connected. So the fact that Palestinians do not have rights um, and Palestinians are treated in one way than other people here in Israel, the protesters are treated badly. And those are the same tactics or some of the tactics that have been targeted to the uh, Palestinian population. So I think in this way, we've come a small uh, way, N not enough. I think still the issue of the occupation is something that most people, even the people uh, protesting on the streets, we have in every protest, the block against the occupation, and it's always being pushed aside, and people are very much against, you know, waving Palestinian flags, and that's like a big uh, debate here among the protest movement, the large protest movements. People feel that, you know, bringing this thing uh, up could draw people away and hurt the protest. I personally think, of course, we should discuss it, and that's a very big part of what is wrong now and what should be fixed. But it's one of the you know, most debatable issues still in Israel, even within the liberal camp, um, unfortunately. Okay, we have time for a few more. I'm going to get back there on the steps, sitting on the first step. Hi, uh, my name's Robin. I'm from London, so I should say I'm not from North America. But also we're in Israel, the land of chutzpah, so I thought I'd ask Rabbi Rick a, a kind of slightly chutzpahic question. Um, a few nights ago we heard from... Uh, from Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove, one of the leaders of the conservative movement in, in America. And he said something, I, I think kind of in a slightly offhand way, but quite provocatively, he said that he thought that in some senses, the conservative movement had kind of served its original purpose um, about kind of Americanizing Eastern European Jews. And he kind of put full stop. There was a kind of, he didn't say anything else, but I think I wasn't the only one to hear in that, that he was like, and we need to come up with something else in the, you know, in the wake of a declining conservative movement and so on and so forth. So I suppose my, the, the nice version of my question is, what do you see as the relationship with the conservative movement? Because we often say reform and conservative Jews, but obviously they're different. And maybe the pushy version is, would you support a merger with the conservative movement? <laughs> Go for it. I mean, the land of chutzpah, let's all find a little bit more moxie. Uh, first of all, Elliot Cosgrove is a dear friend. We taught together at a tikkun leil Shavuot this past Shavuot. Just a gift. What a spectacular rabbi and what a phenomenal community Park Avenue Synagogue is. Um, I also know people who have gone to Park Avenue Synagogue Arab Shabbat and thought they were in a reform synagogue in a good way. <laughs> and that's not a criticism of him or what goes on there, but thinking like, this is really comfortable. And, uh, you know, the immediate past president grew up in the reform movement. She absolutely at home there. So uh, I'll let Elliot explain what he meant. Obviously, he's very articulate, very smart. But your larger question is, have we all served, all of our movements, have we served the purpose for which we were created? We were created, you know, go back to Europe, 
as sort of the harbinger of the Jewish emancipation, right? Could Judaism adapt to a modern world, not just preserve itself as an enclave, but could it actually find a way to live in this world and adopt to some of the new norms? And the answer is, that's happened wildly. We had Rabbi Sarah Horowitz spoke at our graduation at HUC this past uh, May, the first woman to be ordained in the Orthodox community. And she gave tribute to Rabbi Sally Prezant, who was the first woman ordained within the Reform Movement in North America in 1972. Sally, unbeknownst to Rabbi Horowitz, was in the congregation. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And it was a beautiful expression of how not only have we led change within our movement, but some of the changes we've led emerged from the Reform Movement, but now are shared in the wider. That's a great Shekhianu moment. I actually don't think we've finished our kind of shlichut, our mission in the world. But the larger question you ask is, is it time for a merger? First of all, we work so closely together with the conservative movement on so many things, including here. So I think the sense of collaboration is absolute. A lot of the numeric strength I described in the very first answer is due to a whole lot of conservative Jews who are intermarried, who felt they really wouldn't be at home in the synagogue unless it was within our movement. I think the conservative movement is trying to adapt to the reality. But I do think there's a million ways that we're collaborating with the modern Orthodox world, with the reconstructing Judaism. And I look around the Jewish world, I see partners and I see collaboration everywhere. The formal merger, you know, that was a, a conversation on a uh, Yehuda Kurtzer podcast a couple of years ago. Yeah. Because uh, Yehuda got, that would be a juicy one. Let's get that one on there. And, like, and then uh, my colleague Rabbi Jacob Lumenthal was on and we said, we're working together every day. We'll continue to work together every day. But we actually think there's still something in the core mission of both. But I do think we want to reimagine the map of Jewish life. I think the idea that we're so institutionally defined, I don't think actually is helpful. I think people join, uh, if they join, which is a big if for particularly for young people, the place that engages them. They're not looking for the label. What, what's going on there? What's the you know, core set of commitments in this community? And am I going to be embraced? So that's a better frame for us than, you know, which brand is that? Is that uh, Pepsi or Coke? Uh, there are differences. There are real differences. A lot of them, and Elliot wrote about this in a journal article uh, very recently. In yeah, Hartman. our sources journal very article. Very important. People, we should all read it. And some people in our movement read Elliot's piece and said, oh, so you're, <laughs> you're, you're coming to stand with us. I think we, we ought to be having honest, open, public conversations about all this. And I think the change that I referenced in my first answer, that we're not changing fast enough, is true of the entire Jewish world. We're still obsessed with our buildings. We're obsessed with models of membership that were invented 100 years ago, not, not 2,000 years ago. So I just think this is a good moment for us to not be in panic mode. Can I also just say, it's a good moment for us not to only focus on the people who hate us. There are people who hate us and build something in Jewish life that actually takes all of our energy. We're gonna fight the haters, we're gonna stand, we're gonna make our community safe, but there's something bigger for us all to do. And it's not just to make a thriving Jewish community, it's to be God's partners in shaping a more just, a more equitable, a more compassionate world. Okay, we have time for one more question until we close it up right here in the front, please. I'm Joyce Stiefel from Bellevue, Washington, and I'm a physician, and I wanted to clarify something. The Orthodox Union, which represents Orthodox Jews in the United States, is really with the liberal Jews on the issue of abortion. They issued a statement in June 2022 
we do not observe Catholic law where life begins at conception, life begins when the head comes out. And they wrote, Jewish law prioritizes the life of the pregnant mother over the life of the fetus, such that where the pregnancy critically endangers the physical health or mental health of the mother, an abortion may be authorized, if not mandated by halaha, and should be available to all women, irrespective of their economic status. So I think what you just did, which I think is very important, is said, let's not paint groups of people all in the same brush. And I think that's what we've tried to do here tonight. I'm gonna end with this question and I didn't tell them that I'm asking them. What do we share? We share Torah, that's what we share. You both talk Torah. I heard you, I watched it. You started with Torah, you wove it in the middle and you ended with it. And Rick, I know you talk Torah all the time. Can you give us a piece of Torah that is inspiring who you are and what you're doing right now for the Jewish people. So I want to quote, uh, not the Torah, <laughs> but I want to quote um, a Tunisian French writer called Albert Memmi, uh, who wrote about racism. And this piece was quoted by the Chief Justice of the Israeli Supreme Court in the case which, when she accepted our petition to disqualify one of the racist candidates uh, of the Jewish Strength Party four years ago. It was the first time the Supreme Court disqualified a racist candidate since 1992. And when I thought about what drives me, what Jewish values drive me in the work I do, I thought about the compassion I feel toward others because of this um, uh, tradition of being a minority. We spoke about minority rights, we spoke about the need to protect minority rights, we, we know that our Torah tells us to be compassionate toward the orphan, the widow, uh, and the stranger. And so the, this really resonated with me. And she wrote um, this, this piece. You can't be compassionate toward racism. You don't bring a monster into the house, not even and especially not in disguise. To come to terms with the racist world, even to a small extent, means to support fear, injustice, and violence. It means to come to terms with the continuing presence of the darkness of history in which we still live in. It means to put up with a stranger being a possible victim. And after all, who among us is not a stranger somewhere? So I really hope we always remember to be compassionate toward the people around us and you know, together. Imagine what she could have come up with had I told her beforehand <laughs> that I was asking her this. Wow, that is so deep. So we have a Parsha this week. Uh, also, remember some of the diaspora Israel thing is about the Parshiot, and we're like out of sync for a while, but we're, we're in sync this Shabbat. So the Parsha Balak, right? The most famous Matovu Olecha, you know, how good are your tents, O Jacob? So this king, Balak, wants to curse. He's filled with a lot of antipathy towards the Jewish people. To me, in that is... The, the kind of core mission, which is transformation. It's heal the world, I think transform. So what, what's the lineage, and again, in Ilana's presence, you know, one of our great teachers of text, um, in Sanhedrin 105b, there's this beautiful section that talks about Balak's descendants. So who's one of his descendants? Ruth the Moabite that we read on Shavuot. And so she actually is descended from this hater, whose hate is always just turned into bracha. His klala, his curse turns into a blessing, right? And then who's the descendant from Ruth, as we know in our tradition, and the, the text in Sanhedrin reminds us, the Messiah, King David, and the Davidic line. 
To me, that's our job. Our job is to turn curse into blessing, and most importantly, to transform what is to what could be. Not just on Parshat, you know, Balak, but every day. That, that's the core mission. And I just love the lineage. You talk about, and this I think ties in beautifully to Orly's teaching, which is um, in transformation, we, we can't even begin to imagine what is possible. And I think we've got more work than probably we know what to do with, but it's our job to transform this. And I think we can turn as we are uh, blessings. I'll just, the one example I'll give is Rabbi Liz Bahar in Macon, Georgia, whose synagogue was surrounded by these neo-Nazis who had a Jew in effigy. And what are they doing this Sunday? They're having a community celebration of love and unity. And it's with the Jewish community organized with the Christian and the Buddhist and the Muslim and the Hindu and the Sikh. And Matovu uh, Oholecha, how beautiful are our tents. And one day soon, may that be the beautiful tents of our whole world. Well, thank you both so very much for being here. Your candor, your integrity, and your friendship. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to our show. Identity Crisis is produced by David Svi Kalman with assistance from Mary Miller, Serena Shulchet, and Yoa Friedman. This episode was edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC. Our production manager is M. Lewis Gordon. Maital Friedman is our vice president of communications and creative, and our music is provided by So Called. Transcripts of our shows are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We're always looking for ideas for what we should cover in future episodes, so if you have a topic you'd like to hear about, or if you have comments about this episode, please write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can also rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.